ushers, usherettes, whatever, ushers, here we go. And uh, we'll take that, well, as well as, I, I believe you guys in Stevens Point and Appleton, uh, we'll just have a whatever offering thing that you can hit on the way out. Those of you who watch online, go to celebrationchurch.tv, not .com, not .org, not .us, .tv, and make a contribution. Don't be a spiritual slacker, all right? The Bible actually teaches that those who receive ministry in the word are supposed to give back to those who minister to them. And I know you're all very deeply spiritual people, all you online people, so don't be slackers. Go online, celebrationchurch.tv. Contribute a buck. A buck won't kill you, for heaven's sakes. At least go on. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Celebrationchurch.tv. All right. All right, so that's all done here. Everybody, people still coming in? Let's uh, open in a word of prayer real quick, and then we'll begin our Bible study. Father, we thank you for your word. Life comes from your word. Strength, truth, power, transformative power. Your word is not weak, but it is great, greatly powerful in transforming lives and helping us to lead and live successful lives. Help us, Lord, as we get the word in us so that we can live out that which you put in us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. All right, so now we are in Romans, the seventh chapter, and uh, Paul is on his uh, third missionary journey at this point when he's writing this letter, and uh, he's now hanging out at Athens. I'm sorry, not in Athens. Yeah, no, in Corinth. That's where he's at, in Corinth, and that's when he writes the letter to the Roman church. He's never been to Rome at this point, but Christianity is spreading everywhere because of, of uh, the message and people's lives being changed. So he decides to send a letter to them. He talks about how he's looking forward to seeing them. Uh, he will indeed see them, <laughs> not on the ideal terms. What happens is he eventually gets arrested, and they drag his butt all the way back to Rome, where he eventually is martyred. So uh, surely wasn't that his original plan, but he eventually gets there. Anyway, here we go. Uh, or chapter 7. Paul starts writing now about uh, this difference of how we're supposed to view the Old Testament law. Uh, as you know, most of you know, early Christianity was cons consisted strictly of Jewish people. The first epistle in the New Testament was written by James. If you'll read it, in the very beginning, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's talking about to the Jewish people. Uh, they didn't even think you could be a, a Christian if you weren't Jewish first. Big fight about that. Finally, that gets settled Christianity at this point of this writing is spreading everywhere and probably much more among Gentiles than Jews. But uh, in every major city, there's still a Jewish contingent, and many Jews were still believing in Jesus, and the church at this point is made up of Jews and Gentiles together. So at times, eventually in Paul's writing, he spends less time speaking to the Jewish perspective uh, because it becomes predominantly uh, Gentile, which is what we are, uh, but then uh, it, during this period, it's still, you know, I don't know what the percentages is, but it's still it's significant. So as he's teaching, he would often take times to refer to things from a Jewish perspective so those guys would understand it, uh, and then, you know, also to the Gentile and back and forth. Well, now he's talking about how we view the law, the, Christ, the uh, Old Testament law, the law of Moses, and he does this, uh, does this several times now 
uh, well, a few times in some of his letters, but he does it very intensely. Galatians very intensely in some other places where he really makes this argument that we do not live by the Old Testament law. We're talking about the law of Moses. And he uses different analogies, and he's about to use an analogy here. The thing with analogies, you always have to keep in mind, uh, you know, analogies are imperfect ways of trying to make a point. In other words, in an argument, you can say, well, for example, and then you might tell a story about how one thing, and if they try and follow it down at some point, it really doesn't make any sense anymore. But I mean, it's, it's kind of an imperfect way of doing it, but uh, it's not so much that the analogy has to stand, but they're trying to make a point. And he makes his point with his first analogy, how we're set free from the law, and his first analogy is the relationship between a husband and a wife. So let's take a look at this. Uh, Romans, the seventh chapter, verse one. He says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. See, he's jumping back and forth between his audience, the ones who know the law. Don't you know that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Uh, and I'm sure when they're listening, reading this, they're going, what are, you, what are you talking about? I guess, yeah, if I'm dead, it doesn't apply to me anymore. So he says, for example, by law, uh, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and it is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Okay, so that's the very strict law of Moses. Now, the truth is Jesus in his teachings pretty much gave us the same law. Okay, it's not the law of Moses, it's the teachings of Jesus at this point, and we start living by the law of grace. And uh, the teachings in the New Testament are also very uh, clear about that the marriage union is to be honored. Uh, Jesus gave the only exception would be sexual unfaithfulness. Um, but a lot of people have been married, divorced for lots of other reasons. People get in all kinds of crazy situations and stuff like that. So, well, well, what happens to us now in that situation? Well, to, to understand, you have to look at uh, Jesus' teaching. Jesus was really, 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 really strict, okay? We don't get that version a lot because all we ever hear taught from the Gospels is the warm and fuzzy parts. In most church, I mean, if you turn on a TV and a preacher's preaching from the Gospel, you go drop into some other church and they're reading something from the Gospel, money says they're reading something from the warm and fuzzy part of you know, forgiveness and kindness and grace and stuff. Christians, actually pastors, tend to go way out of their way to not tell you the whole story <laughs> because they kind of get, get uncomfortable with it, you know? I mean, because he was really, really strict. Well, how do you explain that? Well, well let me continue. Uh, for example, he taught that you weren't supposed to uh, lust in your heart. If you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. If you hate somebody, it's like you murdered them. Wow, I mean, that's like really strict. He says, if your eye offend you, checking out the hot babes and thinking things you should, you know, he said, you should pluck your eyeballs out. He says, if your hand offend you, I wonder what you could do with that. Chop it off. That's what Jesus said. Now, do we really think Jesus wanted to go, have us go around plucking out our eyeballs and cutting off our hands? If he did, there'd be a lot of one-eyed, one-handed people sitting here right now. But he was really, really strict. And I mean, he was, he was stunningly intense with people. The Bible says his disciples got to the point they were afraid to ask him any questions. I pointed out before, 
stop and think about it. What would it take for you to be so intense nobody would ask you any questions because they're afraid of you? Jesus was like, yes. He was very intense. But yet at the same time, incredibly off the scales, compassionate and forgiving at the same time. That's this dichotomy that people seem to struggle with, you know, the, ver the version of truth and grace. And a lot of times it's as though churches act like you, you, uh, you, can't, you have to choose one or the other. I've been in churches where they say, well, we don't really tell people the whole truth because we believe in grace. What are you talking about? They go together. Jesus, the Bible says, was full of grace and truth. They don't contradict each other. They are seemingly contradictory, but they are not. Grace, which is forgiveness and mercy and all that stuff, never erases the rule. The standard always stays here. Grace doesn't lower the standard. There's people who talk about grace. Therefore, because it's grace, you pretty much can do anything you want. No, 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 no. That is not the way this works. The rule stays here even though grace will cover your failure. It is what it is. It's actually very powerful when you consider it. You know, that's why we don't just live in anarchy because the rules are very, very strict. What you should do is what you shouldn't do. The disciples were often freaked out by things that Jesus said, even about this whole idea about divorce and remarriage. One time, uh, the disciples came to Jesus. It was the second time it was recorded. They came to Jesus and said, you know, can't you just dump your wife? At some point, all right, because she's really getting on my, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because they, they actually liked keeping the women in fear. Uh, it was terrible, actually. That's why God said in Malachi, he hates divorce, because it was cruel to these women. It wasn't like today, and even still today, it's devastating, especially a woman who spent all her life supporting her husband, taking care of his babies, and now he dumps her butt, and now she has no career. What's she supposed to do? It's brutal. Well, back then, times by a thousand. They had no way to, to take care of themselves. I mean, it was an immediate drop to poverty and it was awful, it was just awful. So these guys would use this fear over women, keep me in line. Hey, woman, do what I say. I mean, they would try to find things, you know, like if you burnt the toast, he could divorce you. You know, if you're, I mean, and these are, ooh, if that's the world you're living in, they live in a lot of fear. Uh, people who say Christianity uh, oppresses women are dumb as bricks. They don't know what oppression was. <laughs> Jesus came and set all that straight. You can't do that. And he says, no, you can't do that. And then they said, well, if that's the case, it's not even worth getting married. The disciples, the apostles, these guys. Those little snots, it's not worth even getting married then. And I love the answer Jesus gave. It is one of the most hilarious exchanges in the New Testament, if you understand it. So they say to him, well, is that worth getting married? And then Jesus looks at him and says, you know, some people are born eunuchs, others are made eunuchs by others, and some become eunuchs of their own accord. Now, most of the people, and probably a lot of you right now have no idea what that meant. Uh, I was with the T1 students <laughs> going over this, and they had no idea. What does that mean? What does that mean? So do you know what a eunuch is? No. I said, well, it's a man without testicles. A little shocking to the young ladies in the group, I got to tell you. I never heard of such a thing. Probably more disturbing to the young men in the group, I got to tell you. 
And they said, what? I said, yeah, actually, people would do this intentionally for a variety of reasons. Uh, actually, the closest thing in modern history that we have to that is back some years when, uh, you know, like the Vienna Boys Choir and all this stuff, these, these boys would have these real high voices. You know, these angelic things you hear, ooh, they go real high, oh, just way off those charts. Some of them were like incredible performers. This was their life. And they knew if they hit puberty, they lose their voice. So some of them would, so they could keep their voices. Well, I'd be yelling, aha, uh -huh. all right? So, but that's, just, that's a very extreme thing. But back in this day, 2,000 years ago, and, and thousands of years before, a eunuch was a very prized position, actually. These are, now remember, these are people, all their lives, they scratched out livings. It was a life, it was hard, not like today, I guarantee you. We live in the richest country in the history of mankind. It's hard for us to even begin, you know. Our poorest people have color TV and cell phones and cars and food. They can go down with her, you know, just. Back then, life was really, really, really hard. And one of the most plush jobs you could have was as a eunuch. Why? Because wealthy men would hire you to watch over their wives and daughters. Right? So if you lived in a house with a wealthy person, a wealthy people, you lived, in essence, by default, a wealthy lifestyle. You had the, the homes, the comforts, the uh, food, you know, they didn't have to worry about anything. So in a way, uh, one of the reasons people would become, they were, some of them were highly educated men. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know if we already hit it in Acts or if we're going to get to it where, uh, who was it, Philip runs into a eunuch or translated to a eunuch anyway. We'll get to the story. And he meets this eunuch, and this eunuch's a highly educated guy from Ethiopia or whatever, and they're, you know, well, these were really, they, they primoed these guys out. Such a powerful and wonderful lifestyle, it was almost enviable. And, well, it wasn't in some states. That's why some people would actually choose to become a eunuch. What do you want to, what do, you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> eunuch me out, baby. I want to go with these people. You know what I'm saying? So they were actually done this way, or others, because of their severe devotion to God, didn't want to deal with test, uh, temptation and stuff anymore, so they would nip them off. I mean, so anyway, pretty intense. What makes it so hilarious, if you put it in plain English, these guys are saying, well, if you can't just divorce your wife, not even worth getting married. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, some guys are born without a pair. Some guys have their pair taken off. Some guys give up their pair freely. And the Bible says they never ask them about it anymore. <laughs> no, I think it's a hilarious exchange. You know, we never hear it. We don't think it was because we use, they use these words that we don't know what we're talking. He's basically saying, hey, <laughs> if you lose your motivation for marriage, then, you know, whatever, move on. So this is all this thing. Now, what was I just talking about? Okay, this difference between uh, rules and grace. Now, Jesus was really, really, really strict on this whole idea of divorce and remarriage. But then stop and think, what does he do? A woman gets caught in the very act of adultery, which that's gotta be embarrassing. They drag her, undoubtedly screaming and yelling and crying. They drag her to Jesus and said, hey, the law of Moses says we should stone her to death. What do you think we should do? Because they wanted to catch him, contradicting the law of Moses. And that's when Jesus, the Bible says, he just kind of wrote in the ground and he said, well, 
whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. You guys know the story, right? So uh, the Bible says they, they all freaked out and they all walked away. And Jesus asked the lady, where, where are your accusers? And she says, well, there's, there's no one here. And so well, then I don't accuse you either. He let her off the hook. Go, he says, and sin no more. What's real interesting about this, there's no record or indication that she asked him to forgive her. He just looked at her, saw how much she was hurting, and he just did it. Wow. See, now we like those stories, right? That's the grace. Jesus comes to this woman at the well. The chick's been, she married five times, six guys. She was like, she had five husbands and was like just living with number six. Why get married anymore? You know, just going through them like, you know, bath towels. (laughs) Now, according to Jesus' teaching, she's in big trouble. But what does he do? He reaches out to her. He connects with her. He knows who she is and what, because he's the one who tells her. Because he tells her at some point, you know, she's saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, Jesus, well, why don't you go get your husband and come back? <laughs> and she goes, oh, well, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, yeah, yeah, you're right. You've had five. And number six, you haven't even bothered to make your husband. Well, she freaks, right? And he gives her love and compassion, changes her life, undoubtedly, for eternity. So you see, even though the rule doesn't get changed, Jesus didn't come after, after that encounter and say, you know, guys, I was rethinking, you know, you can have four or five wives, it doesn't really matter. No, it never changes the rule, okay? But there's still grace. That's the power of the message of Jesus. Righteousness is high, but forgiveness is accessible to us. So pretty interesting. So, so this is the analogy he uses that under the law, particularly the Old Testament law, I just wanted to point out that Jesus still basically taught the same thing. But under the Old Testament law, you were stuck with them until one of you kicked. Once one of you kicks, the other one's free. So this is the analogy that is used. So he says, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Obviously when he's crucified on the cross, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So he's using this analogy. Uh, it's kind of hard if you try and <laughs> drill it down a little bit. But he's basically saying, when, you died, when Jesus died on the cross, the law dies. We're set free from the law. Now we become to, just like a woman whose husband dies, now she's free to marry somebody else. Therefore, we transfer from the law to grace. That's his analogy, all right? Um, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. What is he talking about here? Uh, And he's going to make it a little bit clearer here. What he's saying is, when it comes to the Old Testament, is it hot in here or is it just me? Good Lord. Turn that thing down. Save us some money. I keep getting hotter by the minute. Pastor passes out. All right. So what he's basically saying is, in the law, it, you know, it basically brings sin to life. What he's talking about is, and he's going to mention it here in a minute. For example, if, if the Bible says, don't steal, well, now that you know you shouldn't steal, what do you want to do? Steal stuff. Okay? So that's what he means about the law uh, bringing uh, sinful passions to light, uh, 
it's kind of a strange analogies and arguments a little bit to me. I, you know, at some level, clearly sin was there even before the law. So bad, God wiped out the whole world with the, and that was all before the law in the flood. Anyway, these analogies he's using. By now, but now by dying to what once bound us, like he used the analogy of a marriage, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code, okay? So what he's really making very, very clear is we are free from the Old Testament law. Now, how many Christians don't get this is still stunning to me. I'd, even denominations who still don't get this. I'd, I don't understand what their theology is or what, what their point of reference is. They often refer to things in the Old Testament law that we have to uh, abide by. And you, no, because we don't live by the Old Testament law. And technically, and this will really rile a lot of them up, some of y'all watching online, the Ten Commandments are part of the law. It was the beginning of the law. You say we don't live by the Ten Commandments anymore? In a sense, no. You mean we can kill people? No, because now we live by the law of love, see? Love is the fulfillment of the law. You don't steal somebody else's wife. You don't kill people. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You're doing all these things. Well, I still believe in the Ten Commandments. Okay, but the Ten Commandments says, you know, you shouldn't have any graven images. Okay, so you got to get rid of your lawn gnomes. You think I'm kidding. They were very strict about that kind of thing. You can have anything like that in your house. Ooh, that's the first one. And, you know, are you working on Saturday? You shouldn't be working on Saturday. You should be worshiping God on Saturday. Why do you worship God on Sunday? Because we don't live by the law. It's amazing how many Christians scream and feud and fight and down south. They're taking everybody to court and protesting because they want to remove the Ten Commandments from the country. Culturally, I get fighting against that stuff. I get it. On the other hand, I always want to say, you know, we don't really live by that, right? I think most of them would be shocked if you were to say that to them. Uh, there are some Christians who still try to live by the law version of it. Uh, one group would be like Seventh-day Adventists, if you know Seventh-day Adventists. And great people, by the way. Wonderful people. I love these people. Some of the sweetest people in the world. I've been in many of their churches. I've spoken at their universities and stuff, you know. Probably won't anymore after they hear this. But... Uh, <laughs> It is what it is. I mean, they are sticklers for, they see no break from the Old Testament law. In fact, they make things even more complicated in the Old Testament law. Their eating restrictions are tougher than the law of Moses. Well, holy cow, who came up with that plan? I mean, it's bad enough, the Old Testament law, what you can eat, what you can't eat, some of the Adventists jack that even higher. And, uh, and they're really strict. They are as strict on the Saturday Sabbath as any conservative fundamentalist Jew is. I mean, the minute the sun goes down on Friday, you stop. And you can't sell anything, you can't do any work, you can't whatever, until the sun goes down on Saturday night. That is the uh, Jewish law. So that's, and they're, they're big signal. They are Christians. They believe in the sacrifice of Christ and everything else. Really nice people, sweet, but I have no problem with them. And, and, and we're respectful for it. When, when we do seminars with them, uh, we don't do seminars on Saturday, we do them on Sunday. Because on Sunday, you can do anything, but you can't on Saturday. So the uh, s uh, seminar would start like on Saturday night. But our tables, our product tables, have to be covered. We can't sell anything until the sun goes down. 
as soon as the sun goes down, then they pull a kofla and then they go buy stuff. So, I mean, they are strict. They don't mess around with this stuff. Anyway, really great people. It's just, you know, I just think they're wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and any other Christian who holds on to, now if they want to do it, you know, God bless them. It's, it's, it doesn't make them evil. I think it creates problems because then you become selective. Well, what parts of the Old Testament do you agree with and what don't you do? Because they're, they're not obeying all the Old Testament law. You just kind of get yourself in, in dangerous places. Usually Christians that get into really weird things, not putting the Seventh-day Adventists into that category, but some of the really weird things, are people who just are drawn back to that old code. Well, the Bible says this. And then, of course, nutty Christians who go around condemning and yelling at people. You've heard me talk about this many, many times. You know, the Bible says you're supposed to kill homosexuals. You know, they're just idiots. Well, doesn't the Bible say that? Yeah, it also says you should kill people who work on Saturday. You'd all be dead. You should kill people if they disobey their parents. You should kill people if they, they just kind of, you know, break the law. What's the answer? Kill, 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 kill. I think it's save time just having the one coat, you know. <laughs> Why figure out different punishments? Kill them all. I mean, I don't know. They were very strict. Uh, interestingly enough, if you look at it historically, I've read, I don't know. They say there's very little evidence in Jewish history that they ever killed anybody about any of these things. No, they understood the concept of the rule and compassion at the same time. So unlike other religions, they have a history of killing people for all kinds of stuff. Uh, even Jews did not, by and large, live that way, even though they had to have the rule because they understood the difference. Jesus even took it to a higher level of grace and mercy and Blah, 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 blah. All right. So, very, very clear. Paul has made it so clear, crystally, in so many places. We do not live by the Old Testament law. Now, not to say that the Old Testament isn't legit. It's very legit. And there's wonderful things you can learn from it. And, if, and quite frankly, if you don't understand this, a lot of the new parts don't make any sense. How do we wind up here? Well, it helps to know what happened here. Actually, I, I think I'm going to start a, a series uh, at the first of the year of just significant Bible stories that every Christian should know. And it's amazing to me how many do not know them. And a lot of our church are people who've come to faith in recent years. They don't know these stories. They don't know these stories. You need to know them. So don't miss Sundays. I'm going to be going through. I'm just showing you. There's, they're great stories. That, when I say story, I don't mean like they're pretend made up. They're real accounts. We call them stories, whatever. Uh, but a lot of these stories is, found, is, is foundational to know how we approach even God today and why we don't do some of the dumb things people wind up doing today. Well, how do we know we're not supposed to do that? Well, we learn that in this story. You know, that's not how this stuff works. That's not how God works. Uh, very uh, uh, powerful. Uh, the thing that brought this to light, I was sitting with these uh, T1 students, you know, young men and women, and I'm doing this Bible study with them, and they didn't know any of these stories. None of them. I found it highly disturbing. And, uh, and I talked to our youth and children's guys. I said, man, we need to start making sure these kids know this stuff. All right? They need to know it. They need to, and our adults need to know these things because they are very key for us to understanding how God moves and works in the world and how we get to where we are today. Anyway, all right. So, all the Old Testament is legit, but we just don't live by that law, those rules. So he goes on now. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Well, certainly not. See, he basically would slam the law and then he'd have to come to the defense of the law because he knew the guys who liked the law were freaking out. 
and he's kind of does this thing like this all through all this. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. I mean, there's parts of the Bible you read that make no sense to you. This would be one like one of them. You know, what is he talking about? Law of this, la da da da. You know, talking about breaking the speed limit. You know, no, no. He's talking about the Old Testament law, and these arguments back and forth are for the sake of these people who cherished and loved these laws. And uh, so whenever he'd slam them, he still had to make clear that they were still legit for their time. What shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Again, kind of a strange argument from my viewpoint, but that's what he says. He says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the covenant, produced in me every kind of coveting, which we just talked about. You know, it's when you learn you shouldn't do it, suddenly now you want to do it. You know, it's like telling your kids, oh, by the way, there's some cookies over here in the jar. Don't eat them. <laughs> Lots of luck with that. Better you don't tell them there's cookies in the jar. <laughs> okay, no, I won't have it now. Uh, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Again, hard to understand. I'm just saying, for my sake, because sin has always been there, and there's consequences of sin even before the law, hundreds of years before the law ever showed up, hence the flood and stuff like that. But anyway, from his argument, what he's saying is if you didn't know you shouldn't do it, then in a sense it was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, but the commandment and the commandment is holy, uh, righteous, and good. Again, as analogies, if you follow analogies too far, they don't make any sense. Clearly, uh, if you take it strictly, and that's why it keeps jumping back and forth. If sin did not exist before the law, then it shouldn't be a law. <laughs> then nobody sinned. Well, of course people had sinned from Adam on, you know. But it was just the argument he's making. Did that which is good, meaning the law, become death to me? Well, you just said. But he goes, no, by no means. <laughs> he's jumping on the other side. We see this a lot, right? You've seen this many times now with Paul. He'll say this, but then he jumps over here, and he says that. It's like, what? And then he kind of jumps over here, and he says this, what? And so I guess I, I talk, I, the best analogy I got is like a, uh, a sheepdog. The sheep get very confused by the dog. Because one minute he's over here barking at him, go this way. Next minute he's barking over here. Well, make up your mind. You know, but what he's doing is steering them in the right direction. All right. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin may be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The whole point of all of this is he's just trying to say, uh, using his analogy from the beginning here, you know, being alive and then dead and set free and all that kind of stuff. It was the law, he's saying, that made sin really clear. And of that, that's very clear. I mean, there's no argument there. I'm not quite sure what he's saying about some of these other things, but we get it. The point is, because of the law pointing out, and the basic ones would be the Ten Commandments. Those are the biggies, right? These are the, this is how, without that being really made known to human beings, well, they could come make up their own laws. And, 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 but no, no, no. According to God, these are the basics. And of course, there's lots and lots more that go in there. So it was the com through the commandment, he says, sin became utterly sinful. It's not that sin itself changed. It's always been utterly sinful. But it just becomes very clear to us what sin is. 
We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. So now here's what's interesting. Up to this point, he keeps using the past tense. The law was and sin became and all that. Past. Then he kind of changes the tenses here, which sets up for a, a big debate that uh, Christians have had. It's kind of going to get deep in the theology thing that most of you don't care 10 cents about, but, uh, but for those of you who do, uh, we're trying to understand what he's talking about in the next bunch of sentences, in the next several paragraphs. This is hotly debated of what he's talking about. Let's read it, and then I'll, I'll talk about, see what he's talking about. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold unto sin. I do not understand what I do. Now the tense has changed. It's current. It's not. But yet the context is what he used to do. That's where the fight comes in. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate what I do. Anybody ever feel that? And if I do what I do not want to do, well, then I agree the law is good. As it is, I no longer, it's, it is no longer myself who do it, but it's the sin living in me. He's talking about the power of sin. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. This I keep doing. All right? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. <sighs> okay. I'll keep reading a little bit, and then we'll come back. And I'll show you the big fight here. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Talking about sin. All right, now, there's not a person listening to my voice, if you're a Christian, who hasn't at some level experienced this. Okay, the good I want to do, I don't do. <laughs> and what I don't do, dang it, that's what I wind up doing. Now, at some level, uh, we understand, and he's gonna make it clear why that can still be true in us. But here's where the argument comes out. I think, those on this side of the argument, he's talking about what it's like to live without God in your life. And all you have is rules and regulations. Others argue, no, this is the normal Christian experience. That, well, we all sin. Everybody sins, we're just going to sin some more. Right? And then really, verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's not really me. <laughs> I'm not really. It was a sin, you know. I didn't mean to kill the guy. It was the sin that made me do it, you know. I, you know, I didn't mean to get drunk. It's just, it's just that old demon in that bottle came out and grabbed me. You know, the devil made me do it. Devil made me do it. Who was it? Flip Wilson. What was the character? Geraldine. <laughs> Hilarious character. He pretended to be this old black lady. You know, he made it. The devil made me do it. That's why I did it. I didn't mean to do it. You know. Uh, so there's a level of truth in that, but that is not supposed to be the normal. I totally, absolutely refuse to accept that the normal Christian experience is the good we want to do, we just can't do. And the evil we shouldn't do, can't help it, it's just the devil made me do it. I think it's patently absurd. What kind of Christian experience is that? Where's the victory in that? Any Muslim lives that way. Any person who, you know, any other religion in the world, doesn't matter, Christian or not, they all live that way. 
Are we saying that we are no different? That the, the, all there is in Christianity is just the fact that we can be forgiven, but now we keep living like pigs and there's no changed life? No. That's absurd. So what he says, well, this that's, that's what he's having. He says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to this death? Keep reading. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That phrase in and of itself, it says that's what makes a difference from what he just described. If your version of Christianity is you are constantly living where the stuff you should do, I know I should do it, Pastor, I just never can do it. And the bad, nasty stuff, you know, I know, Pastor, I shouldn't do it, but I can't hold it, the devil makes me do it. If that's your version of Christianity, I would doubt if you've had an experience with God. Because when you have an experience with God, he sets us free from that. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. But you got to keep reading. See, now we've got chapter 8. You have to remember, these things weren't written in chapters. They just chopped them up in chapters and verses, chunks so we could find where, the, where to read. So he just keeps reading this. Then he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? Stuff I don't want to do, I do. Stuff I shouldn't do, I keep doing it anyway. I'm pastor praying for me. Man, if you're walking from Jesus, for Jesus, that should change in your life. Now, that's not to say that every single one of you, at times, does not experience that. Because what happens is if we, and he's going to explain it in a minute, if we forget who we are, which often, spiritually speaking, people kind of forget who they are. I got a sermon coming up about remembering. We forget who we are, and you, you let your head drift away from spiritual things. Sure enough, you start falling into the old carnal thinking, you will start acting that way again. Even though you have been born again. But that's not to be excused. That is not to say this is normal. Pastor, I shouldn't do it, but I did it, and it's just the way it is. Wasn't me, it was sin inside me. That's not what this is talking about. We've all been there. We do it from time to time. We sin, we make mistakes. We come to, the Bible says, if any man sins, let him confess his sin. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's why we still have forgiveness and things, and nobody does this perfectly. But to paint and I know religious leaders who argue intensely about this, who they, they say this is the normal Christian experience. That's just that's the way it is. We all just do stuff we shouldn't be doing, can't do the good stuff we should, and that's the normal. And I, just, I reject that. I just think it's absurd. And certainly not what he's saying. How in the world can you keep reading this and walk away with the sense that that's the way it is? What he says is, because through Jesus Christ, through the law of the Spirit gives life, has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless. Remember, he's talking about the law, these rules. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, you can't just do it on your own. Which, by the way, you have to understand Christianity is not about you trying to do all this stuff. It's about Christ living in you. He's the one who makes this powerful ability to live not in this horrible place where you can start actually love people you used to hate and not do things you used to do. And be free from things that used to have you, it's little hands wrapped around your neck. You don't have that anymore. Now we're free. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty I'm free at last. It wasn't about civil rights. Now I'm telling you, that was about Jesus setting you free. Whom the Son sets free, says, is free indeed. 
free from what? If this is our normal experience and everybody's just supposed to, your life sucks this way, just say, come, yes, Jesus, forgive you. What change is that? What victory is that? That's just leaving in total defeat. The beautiful thing about it, through the power of Christ, we can walk above all this stuff. All right? Now, what the law was powerless to do because it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending, uh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to become a sin offering, sacrifice on the cross. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live by the flesh, but now we live according to the spirit. All of those Old Testament laws and everything, that they were trying to find some point of righteousness and stuff. The full and complete requirement of all those rules is met in the spirit when we walk with Christ. It immediately, we become justified, the Bible says. Good analogy is just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to justify. As far as God, your slate is clean. He looks at you, you have a clean slate. It's a lot of times hard for people to grasp because they think about their own slate and it looks pretty ugly to them. That's the way God looks at you. He values you highly. Because that's what happened when Christ died on that cross. When he takes Jesus' blood and applies it to you, man, it clears everything up. It's an amazing, stunning thing. If you fail, then you need to confess it and get right again. But we cannot walk free. He says right here, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. See, that's why some people fall back into these old patterns where this law, this sin nature seems to dominate you and now you're not doing what you should do and you're doing what you shouldn't do. That's what happens when you let your mind go and you're not being spiritually minded and your head is constantly filled with unspiritual thoughts. Inevitably, it will pull you down. And the one way you'll know it's pulling you down is you start doing things you shouldn't and you don't do the things you know you should. And as soon as you recognize that in your life, there should be a little alarm that goes off and say, whoa, man, I need to get my head back in spiritual things. Reading the Bible, coming to church, getting the word of God in you. This is why we do what we do, right? Because when you're uh, walking in the spirit, it changes everything. So those who live according to the flesh, have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. You want your life to be dominated by death? Keep thinking the old cruddy thoughts you think. If you want your life to be dominated by life and peace, you need to think spiritual thoughts. It's just that simple. I'm telling you, it's all in your head. Everybody say, it's in my head. It's in your head will determine how successful you are at this. It just is. Now, that's the good thing about coming to church. You kind of get your head in a good place. You come to the Bible study. You get your head in a good place. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things you should do. You know, reading the Bible. And you don't have to read big chunks at a time, just little parts of it. Just kind of get your head a little bit in thinking spiritual thoughts on a daily basis. It's a good thing for you. And watch the kind of stuff you do listen to and what you watch, okay? If, if your every day ends by you watching slasher films, <laughs> you may start having anger issues, okay? say, well, I kind of enjoy this. Oh, okay, once in a while, you know, it's whatever. Okay, but if the, you got to watch. If you're constantly listening to bad music that pulls your head into the toilet, that's bad for you, you know? So, I don't like listening to Christian music. Okay, I don't like listening to it either. I can't stand it, most of it. I, I like the message. Don't stone me. 
he without sin. As a musician, I can't stand most of them. They play the same three chords over and over again all day long. It's like I can be listening to a song, turn it off, turn it back on in 15 minutes. It sounds like the exact same song again. And it was just a contemporary Christian music makes me have visions of driving my car through a pile of bricks. You know, I just, I can't take it. If you work for the radio station, I apologize for that. But anyway, so I, so I don't like it. I don't either. But then I don't listen to cruddy stuff. Do something else with your head. Listen to other stuff. And if you're always listening to stuff that just gets you mad all the time, you gotta be careful about that. You know, if you're always listening to, you know, talk radio, your blood pressure starts rising. It just, you know, now some are very entertaining, informative. I like other ones just make me mad. You know, I, I, I can't listen to Mark Levin. You ever listen to Mark Levin? I want to shoot people. I just, 10 minutes, I just want to, blam, 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 start shooting people because it makes me so angry. I said, man, I can't handle it. I got to shut it off. I don't want to be like this. I got to watch what I think. I say, well, I like him. Good. Everybody has, everybody's different. You don't have to think like me. We all have our different lines and stuff. What I'm saying is you want to guard what's in your head, what comes in. All right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. Okay? This is what gets us in trouble. Because if you don't stay on top of these things. See, this is why we encourage people to come to church, like on a night like that, and on every Sunday. I say it over and over again. The people who are the absolute most successful people in our congregation are the ones who go to church every Sunday and they come to Bible study every Wednesday night. And the ones who struggle the most in life, I guarantee you they struggle the most in life. They have all these problems and all everything falling apart are people who do not go to church, by and large, every Sunday, and certainly not on Wednesday nights. It's as predictable as anything else. It's like people who smoke five packs of cigarettes a day tend to have coughing problems. What do I cough all the time? <coughs> well, I'll tell you why. Okay? It's really that predictable. You do these things on purpose. People who have good lives do it on purpose. Why do you want to do this? Because the more you get these thoughts in there, the more you can walk through your day and you actually have spiritual thoughts and spiritual concepts and you're doing things intentionally, you start to live free. But if you get away from it, and I would love to tell you that there's a coasting in the middle. There's not. You're either moving forward or you're falling back. It always is that way. Just about the time you think you got this down, you're doing good and feeling good, and you got the joy of the Lord in you, and you know, you know, I, I read my Bible the other day, I don't need to do it today, and I was at church, you know, this Sunday, you know, I'm going to go sit on my butt next Sunday, and it doesn't take long, man, you start falling back down. You will, I'm telling you, you will immediately start finding yourself doing stuff you shouldn't do, and not doing things you know you should. The mind governed by the flesh is death. If you really got this, you would be more intentional about what you, let, what, you, what you watch and what you read, right? You know, are you a soap opera mama? Don't raise your hands if you are. <laughs> Cast the devil out of you. But, you. but you watch that crap and it is crap. I could use another word, but we'll go with crap tonight. <laughs> You watch that crap over and every single, well, I like the storylines, really? And some of y'all are guilty of this. You watch and read stuff that would make a normal person vomit. And you say, well, you know, I just like the storylines. Really? You don't think that stuff's getting in your head? These are the people all of a sudden they find themselves in death, doing things they shouldn't do, not doing things they shouldn't, they feel bad. I don't know how it happened, but I don't know how, I don't know how this happened. As if it's just, just like, a random thing. 
It's not random. Life happens to you on purpose, intentionally. Now, we live in a culture that people don't like that, right? Everybody should be equal. The government should give everybody the same. You know, it's not fair. Life's not fair. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. That's not real life. Well, actually, real life is unfair. <laughs> Suck it up, buttercup. All right? People who want to succeed in life do it intentionally. And again, it's not my job to go around and tell you what you should or shouldn't and everything, you know. And then we get into legalism and all the crazy stuff. There's stuff I can watch that some of you would never watch. It doesn't bother me. You know, war movies. I love war movies. It encourages me. It, it really does in a very sick, twisted way. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because you know how you, you, you sit and think, you know, my life is so bad and boo, you know, a fly landed on my ear and it's not fair and we got this problem and the doctor said this. And this. I put on some warm and watch these guys in the trenches gutting it out, suffering, having their buddies blown to smithereens. Hold it. I think, you know, I got it pretty good. <laughs> Praise the name of Jesus. I feel a lot better watching that stuff. By the way, great war movie. Speaking of Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, have you seen the uh, new Mel Gibson movie, uh, Hacksaw Ridge? Amazing, powerful movie. It's one of the best war movies, if not the best. I mean, it probably it easily rivals, you could debate, you know, Saving Private Ryan, but I mean, it's way up there. It's, it's, it's about the Seventh-day Adventist guy who makes this promise to God that he will never touch a gun. And he's in the army, and they gave him such a hard time about it gave him grief constantly, tried to kick him out of the army. You know, called him a coward. He said, I'm not a coward. I, I want, I'll, I'll train as a medic. I'll be there. I'll, I expect him to hide from nothing and nobody. And I'll, I'll be right there in the trenches and stuff. But I just, I made this vow. But I mean, they hated his guts. So they get uh, into, actually the movie kind of, you know, movies can't tell the whole story. I'm reading the book actually, and, and it's much more detailed. There was a lot of battles this guy was in. But by the time they get to this battle, the movie's around. I mean, it is shot incredibly. It's like, holy cows, you're watching this. And this guy is running from one person to another person to another and, and taking care of him and stuff like that. Everybody else is hiding. He's running around. It's like, he's going to get himself killed. You know I mean? He wouldn't stop. And uh, so finally, they, they, they take this ridge. I'm not going to ruin it for you, am I? Okay. They take, they take it. You've got to see it. It's gotta, you can read about it, you know, but I, you, you can see it. It's stunning how well they do this. Well, the next day, you know, the uh, Japanese have this counter charge or whatever, and they basically overrun. They flood so many people, you can't kill them all. And I mean, they just overrun. And these guys, it was a problem actually in World War II, why, why they were having such a problem with the Japanese, is they were so intense in their fighting. You know, these other, you know, the Germans and Russians, everybody, somebody, okay, I quit. These guys wouldn't quit. And they would come at you. You could shoot the guy, he's a walking dead man. But he's so jacked up. He keeps running at you. He'll kill three of your buddies by the time he finally falls over dead. I mean, it was a nightmare. And they come. So they're all pulling back. And they're, you know, pull back, pull back. And they're just pouring this. The way they shoot is as stunning when you see. It's like, oh, man, can you imagine living in it? I don't know. Those guys, they can't get, they can't get away. They're, they're running bayonets through them. They're shooting them. I mean, it was, guys are dying, getting wounded left and right. And they're all, they're coming down this ridge trying to get off of there because that was the purpose of the, this flood of guys was to push the Americans off. Well, they push them all off, except this guy stays up there. And all night long, he goes through and he keeps finding wounded Americans. 
And he would pull them. And even some wounded Japanese, he'd find them. And he'd pull them over. And by himself, he would lower them down on a rope uh, to the guys down there. And then they'd take these guys in. So this guy, I think he's responsible for saving, I'm trying to remember, 70 people? I mean, it's insane. The guy didn't stop. He just wouldn't stop. And at the end of the movie, it actually shows the guy telling his story. Because it's a true story. They actually recorded it. He's, he's dead now. A few years ago, he died. But uh, uh, he just kept saying, Lord, help me find one more. Oh, God, help me find one more. God, help me find one more. Man, when you write, it's powerful. Man, how about we have that kind of attitude about trying to win people to Jesus, you know? Lord, help me touch one more. Let me help one more. This is a very inspiring story. This guy's just going on and on. Anyway, uh, he is, was the first non-combatant to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, you know, they don't give those out very often, okay? But he got it because of all the lives he saved and he never shot a gun. The entire war was right there and he came home and lived to be an old man. I mean, it's a powerful story. Really, I highly recommend you go see this movie, Powerful. And he was a Seventh-day Adventist. He would not have liked what I just said a little while ago. Now they're sweet. They know everybody else doesn't agree with them. You can't be a Christian in America and not realize, hey, we're on a different day than everybody else. All right. They're, they're sweet people, wonderful people. They really are. Uh, this, that's just what they believe, and that's fine. Um, where am I? I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life in peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So again, I don't see how anybody takes this previous thing and say, well, that's normal Christianity. All he's doing through all this is trying to show the difference between walking with Christ and not walking with Christ. If you're doing it without Christ, yeah, you're stuck in the situation. Your sin controls you. But if you're walking with Christ and walking in the Spirit, keep your mindset on the Spirit, you can live victoriously. You can let the law of love dominate your heart in life and not be doing things you shouldn't be doing and do things you know you should and you do it intentionally. This is the Spirit of God working in you. That's normal, supposed to be normal Christianity. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Uh, and this is the Christian experience. It always has been. We talk about it whenever we do baptism. There's this dichotomy. On the one hand, we have our, our flesh that is, we're supposed to die to sin, and now we walk in the newness of life as Christians. But always remember, that old rascal is still there. He's still there. Every single one of you are capable of doing almost anything. I'd say anything. People say, oh, I'd never do that. Don't you kid yourself giving yourself the right opportunity, put yourself in the right circumstances, get your head in the wrong spot, anybody. If you're thinking, oh, I'd, I'd never hurt anybody, punch anybody in the face, sure you would. I'd never kill anybody, give them the right circumstances, you're darn tootin' you would. Oh, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, you would. Oh, I'd never cheat on my wife, you absolutely would. Oh, I'd never cheat on my husband, sure you would. Given the right circumstances. That's why you're supposed to pray as we pray every Sunday. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. That should be your prayer every day. Lord, keep me, keep me away from that stuff. Keep me, because, and I tell God this all the time, because he knows. Lord, you know me. I need help. Don't put me on my own. I don't do well on my own. 
okay? I, if I don't have the spirit of Christ working and active in me and getting my hand in the right place, I become a very, very bad person. It's just that flesh. It just, that's the good news of dying, which sounds terrible. From a Christian perspective, and Paul talks about this eventually, the good news is we finally die. What makes it good is all that pulling at you, some reason, that part of you that wants to get angry and bitter and get, you know, uh, lusting and, and envying what other people have and want to run over your neighbor with your truck and all, all that stuff that's constantly pulling at you. When you die, you're finally free of that. That it never touch you again. That's part of what makes heaven heaven, man. Stop and think about it. If we could just live in this constant presence of God situation and never had your flesh bothering you to do bad stuff, wouldn't that be a great thing? Well, it's going to be a great thing. It's called heaven. So the good news is we eventually escape this body. Of course, nobody wants to do that. We all want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? Uh, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And then he's going to go on, uh, continuing a little bit more, talking about uh, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And, uh, uh, and there's great stuff here yet to come throughout, uh, throughout all of this. He still does this thing between Israel and back, you know, to the, to the non-Jews. But uh, Romans is an amazing writing and full of just incredible, powerful stuff and great theology concerning our Christian faith. All right? So we're done for tonight, and uh, then we'll come back again next Wednesday. God bless you guys. Don't forget to get your children. <laughs> They're wonderful, but we don't want them all night long. <laughs>